So have you gotten, have you, uh, you jet ski before Marsh ever? Yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. You, you jet ski on, on this lake? Not on this trip, but oh, okay. uh, no, I don't have a jet ski. We'd have to rent it. It's kind of expensive. Yeah. We're, we already rented the pontoon, you know, for the kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just curious if, <coughs> if there were any moments from your trip that mirrored the great outdoors. I guess maybe that could be a subject Save later it for on. the pod. Don't spoil you know? it. Yeah. Save <laughs> it for the pod. Come on now, man. <laughs> I almost, I mean, as I'm sure you could have guessed, Marsh. You almost picked the Battle of Lake Change. Yeah. I did, but I, I talked to Ryan and I was like, I was like, man, feel we both were like, feel kind of bad. Like, Marsh's on vacation. Here's like a three hour movie, you know, and on my laptop. That's what I said. I was like, I was like, Ryan, he's probably watching on his laptop. I'd feel bad, you know, making him watch that for three hours yeah. on his laptop. It's like, have yeah. you guys ever seen 3,000 extras on a 15 inch screen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder, the policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight. Once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell oh, you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown them, but they are who we thought they were. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and am joined here today with... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a theme for the week and the other two program films in response to that theme. And we come on here to have it out. And... Today, it's uh, episode 62, At the Lake, because I am currently at the lake. And so this is a fun little uh, remote episode for me here as I get to sit lakeside, sipping on my dad's margaritas with, you know, Mm. children running all around. And uh, that's what I asked you to bring, to bring me that lake vibe. And... uh, Boy, you you sure did. Uh, in one in particular, obviously, we get a lot of lake action. Not dissimilar <laughs> from my own Midwestern uh, lake vacation. And in the other, we get a brief but intense uh, little set piece on uh, on a lake. So uh, we're here talking about lake cinema. Uh, so why don't we just dive in? Uh, Ryan, you had the uh, earlier film. Why don't you... Bring it to the table. Sure. Well, I would even, you know, qualify a little bit of what you mentioned, something I was thinking about while watching the film that I chose, which, yes, does have a brief but really impactful moment at the lake. Uh, But I will also bring up the fact that the film I chose is sort of a memory piece that revolves around a lake, a lake triggering a series of remembrances. And the lake itself becomes a framing device for the majority of the film. So the film that I came across is the 1949 British film directed by David Lean titled 
The Passionate Strangers, starring the great Claude Rains, Ann Todd, and Trevor Howard, the, the, the folks you would expect to see in a David Lean romantic picture from the, from the era. What? Isn't it called The Passionate Friends? What did I say? Strangers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is called The Passionate Friends. Um, <laughs> Calling Dr. Freud. <laughs> Yes, let me uh, let me reset. I'll just include that because that's funny. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, thank you, Marsh, for uh, for 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 clarifying that for me. There, the the film is the 1949 David Lean film, The Passionate Friends, starring the great Claude Rains, Ann Todd, and Trevor Howard, who you would expect to see in a David Lean romantic picture from the era. The film itself is adapted from an H.G. Wells novel of the same name and tells the story of Mary, who's played by Ann Todd, as she's checking in to a beautiful hotel room right alongside the lake in the Swiss Alps. And while she's in the hotel room, little does she know that right next door, also occupying a room, is Stephen, played by Trevor Howard, who is sort of a long lost love or a missed opportunity of sorts in, in her love life. As she's laying down for bed, she doesn't necessarily know he's there, but there's something spiritual that she senses with his presence. And it triggers this remembrance of a New Year's Eve, many years past in 1939, when she again crossed paths with Stephen. And then the film traverses into sort of brief encounter two, territory where Mary who is now married to Claude Rains has like a brief affair with Stephen and they rekindle that flame of their love and the film itself is extremely tender and beautiful and focuses on this sort of inner turmoil that Mary is experiencing for whether or not she wants to feel as though she can belong just to herself or give herself up and belong to another in a certain type of love. As her husband Howard and her lover Stephen uh, sort of represent two different polarities in terms of the type of love that she's possibly going to experience in life. There's the stability and the freedom and tenderness of her married life with Howard, but there's also the exciting and thrilling romantic love that she could experience with Stephen. So again, all of this is wrapped up in this vacation by the lake where all the, after we experience Brief Encounter 2.0, we then have these lovers meet yet again. And I won't get into the specifics of that, but it is, um, it is a reconnection that certainly matches the grandeur of the Swiss landscape. The film itself was actually filmed alongside a French lake uh, that sort of borders with Switzerland. It is Lake Dancy, which is um, sort of given a little bit of a brief advertisement at the beginning of the film, which I thought was kind of fun for a week where we're discussing lakes. Lake Dancy is the third largest lake in France. It is known as Europe's cleanest lake because of strict environmental regulations introduced in, in the 60s, and because of that, it is a very popular tourist destination and was formed about 18,000 years ago after the large alpine glaciers themselves melted. It's a very beautiful lake. I'd love to visit someday. Hopefully I will. Um, and if I do, I'll think about love. I'll think about romance. I'll think about different love languages as expressed in the David Lean film, The Passionate Friends. So that's the film I brought, and I'm excited to talk about it. 
Thank you very much, Ryan. Andy, why don't you tell us about what lake you brought? Yes, I'd be happy to. Thank you. I, I, yeah, so, so I really thought I'd lean in to the atmosphere that I imagined you were going to be experiencing, uh, you know, at the, the, the lake in Indiana where you went, the, the, the Midwest lake vacation vibe. And naturally for me, uh, there, there, there was a film that, that really, really, really replicates that, experience that mood that atmosphere uh in many ways <laughs> and that <laughs> is the 1988 film directed by howard deutsch and written by john hughes the great outdoors this is a film that stars john candy as chet ripley uh this sort of chicagoland family man who's packed up his wife and two sons to, to head off to a, a lake resort in Wisconsin for a relaxing, uh, you know, reconnection with his family in the North Woods. But those plans are quickly foiled by the arrival of his brother-in-law, the hotshot investment broker from Chicago, Roman Craig, played by returning gauntlet champion Dan Aykroyd. You know, I felt we savaged poor Dan Aykroyd uh, pretty pretty harshly in in our our episode. The truth is out there on on UFOs, and we really leaned into the guy, and and we we kind of tore him a new one. But you know, I, I wanted to bring him back in. I think one of his great comedic performances in this film to to give him a, a a redemption arc if you will because i do think he's he's quite good uh, at times in in this film and he really is a, a pretty solid comedic actor and and pairing him with his good old canadian buddy john candy in this goofy bit of of family tension and comedic drama if you will of of these two sort of opposite families coming together and and trying to have a nice weekend together but a lot of antics ensue uh it's a it's a sort of uneven film and i think that's kind of what we're going to talk about here i think there's really really funny moments in the film there's some really really good bits of of conflict between uh particularly chet and roman you know chet is the sort of you know, lower middle class every man and, and Roman is his his presented as his sort of opposite, you know, he's this this big money guy, you know, uh, he likes making a splash in everything he does and it 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 creates a lot of um, a lot of issues between the two. Um, we're also going to be uh, treated to uh, a good old grizzly bear attack and some some rambunctious raccoons and a little bit of a towny romance uh, from from one of Chet's sons, who's who's uh, experiencing perhaps first love in his 
lake vacation. So, yeah, I thought let's bring a, a movie that, for me, gives me kind of a very sort of warm Midwestern vacation vibe. This is a movie that's not really going to challenge you in any way, uh, but I think it's going to provide certain certain treats and certain um, certain laughs along the way. And that's the <laughs> film that I brought, The Great Outdoors. Thank you very much, Andy. And yeah, it, it certainly did. And I, in an attempt to kind of uh, recreate or create my own sort of Midwestern vacation experience, I got the entire family to watch the film with me last night, ages uh -oh. 3 to 72. And uh, boy, oh boy, uh, we were laughing all the way, except for <laughs> the children. Um, but nevertheless, um, it was a it was a good time. Yeah, you know, it 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 hit us uh, right where we wanted that sort of sleepy eight nine p.m. lake. You know, just start sinking to the couch a little bit, have some popcorn. Uh, and uh, if I can't recall certain details of the movie, it's because there was too much going on. I didn't take any notes. Um, <laughs> I do want to I want to start, though, by connecting these films quite literally, because I found a connection between them that kind of amazed me. And I mean, quite literally, in the sense that, you know, you may not think a David Lean film from the 40s and, a, you know, a, a John Hughes comedy from the 80s would uh, maybe have actors that had worked together. But I discovered that Trevor oh. Howard of The Passionate Friends, starred in a film with Bart the Bear hmm. in 1980, Windwalker, which was Bart the Bear's first on-screen appearance. And I was like, holy shit, wow, you know, that's a pretty uh, <laughs> pretty, cra pretty crazy thing. Uh, so there's a literal connection. We've got two different actors, one a bear and one a British man, <laughs> who have worked together uh, in the 1980s. So I wanted to throw that out there. Amazing. I wonder if John Candy ever asked Bart the Bear about Trevor Howard as sort of a reprieve from Dan Aykroyd asking Bart the Bear about all the aliens he would have seen up in Alaska, <laughs> where he's from. <laughs> Absolutely. Shout out, big shout out to Bart the Bear. We didn't mention that in my intro, but yeah, one of the great animal actors of all time. Really. It's the John Wayne of bears. That's what Anand said after uh, making the bear. Amazing. <laughs> Bart the Bear also is one of those th things that is completely also like out of place just in terms of authenticity for this film, which I thought was something very funny about it in general. Obviously, Bart the Bear is an Alaskan Kodiak bear. Um, <laughs> and even Andy, you mentioning like a grizzly bear attack in the North Woods. Um, this film is purportedly set in Wisconsin. There are no grizzly bears up in yeah. Wisconsin or the North Woods. There are uh, black bears and, and brown bears, of course. Um, but funny enough, too, this film was filmed at Bear Lake in California, right in the San Bernardino Mountains. And uh, let me tell you, don't look a thing like Wisconsin. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. No, it doesn't. Except for when they stick like a little neon sign in the background that says like 
point beer or whatever. Yeah. You there know? is there, there. There's also a very prominent line in Kugel's yes. sign. So yeah, there's a, there's a couple little details that they definitely nailed. But yeah, it is not a Northwoods uh, vibe as such. Uh, right. As we all as we all know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I also think that in a way, the Great Outdoors is sort of this John Hughes projection of the perfect Northwoods vacation. You know, it's like this filmic space of this yes. is what a Midwestern vacation feels like to a man from Chicago driving up to the boondocks in Wisconsin. You know, <laughs> even if it looks like a bit dumpy up in Wisconsin, Big Bear Lake in California, that's what it feels like for yes. the Chicago man who, who's up there. It's the know? ecstatic Illinois truth. Yes. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then conversely, of course, we have the ecstatic, just like British romantic truth of Lake Don Sea. Oh, boy. It's like immaculate, stunning, beautiful lake uh, in, 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 the, in the Alps. You know, that is something that perfectly reflects the, the internal emotions of uh, the characters in that film. Mm-hmm. And Lean's such a bastard, too, because he opens the film with, like, an insanely beautiful pan of this lake and then just starts going in, back in time for 45 minutes, yeah. which is cool. Like like you said, Ryan, you could argue that actually the first hour of this film is a woman remembering at a lake, right? That's the yeah. narrative. Um, but I was like, God, we got to get back to that lake. Yeah. It was so nice, you know? It really is that picturesque kind of, like, Alps uh, uh, lake situation and i think you know a good place to start to also connect the films um is to kind of yeah do some lake theory uh because different characters in these films of course they're they're very different people and they have different kind of reads on the lake itself and in the great outdoors there's uh, a scene between Aykroyd and candy where they're sort of just sitting in rocking chairs and looking out at this beautiful lake and you know <laughs> Aykroyd is is giving him shit and he's like what do you see when you look at the lake and, and John Candy says well uh, Actually, I would look around you Roman for God's sakes this is this is this is beautiful country here take a good look I'll tell you what I see when I look out there I see the underdeveloped resources of northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I see a syndicated development consortium exploiting over a billion and a half dollars in forest products. In a wonderful sort of like Ackroyd, you know, staccato monologue where he's oh, talking God. about the syndicated consortium that will, uh, you know, pull resources from uh, from the medical area. Medical waste. <laughs> yeah, medical waste. And put it under the water safely. Yeah, that rant is incredible. And, and it did... Immediately, like, take me back to the, the you know, Ackroyd Unplugged. And I was just like, this is exactly what he sounded like when he was talking about, you know, like, like <laughs> historic you know, UFO sightings. Yeah, yeah. Little, you know, men in black and little green guys and stuff. Right. Yeah. I don't want to, like, interrupt the thread too much, but I, I just have to say it. You know, I, I obviously, The Great Outdoors is not a very good movie and has, like, a bunch of real things that, like, irritated me. But I will say, Andy, I completely agree with you. Ackroyd redeemed he is a freak in this movie and his performance is oh he's so funny incredible everyone else registers as so boring compared to the absolutely gonzo performance that Ackroyd gives in this so I I would like bang my gavel and say Ackroyd redeemed like I loved watching him in this movie yeah agreed 
he yeah not to get too far afield from lake theory here but he he does and we can get more into it as we describe the film in more detail but i mean part of why i love this movie so much is 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 just because of him uh and i think that he steals every scene that that he's in and it's unfortunate for john candy because he's he's also a great comedic actor but but he has the the thankless job in this film of playing the straight man too right to Aykroyd and Aykroyd as a result is just, you know, he has every good line in this movie. He really does. But yes, that that's an amazing moment though, Marsh. Yeah. When, when they're, they're, they're both looking out and that's really when we get to really see, you know, what's deep down inside of both of these men and, and this, this lake, this, this view of nature is what reveals you know, how fundamentally different these two people are, the way that they see this lake and the world beyond it. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about the passionate friends because there is a kind of a, an occupational connection between Roman in The Great Outdoors and Howard in The Passionate Friends, who is an international banker. And he is mm. this sort of like cold banker husband who provides for his wife but their marriage is kind of yeah this kind of like business arrangement more than it's anything romantic right and so just like roman he's like this capitalist who is like cold and calculating and out of touch with nature and i was thinking about in particular again not to not to jump ahead too far but when howard does arrive at the lake he immediately takes out these brand new binoculars and he starts kind of like peeping around the lake with these binoculars. But I noticed that he's not interested in anything anyone's doing. He's simply remarking upon the technology of the binoculars Mm -hmm. and marveling at the binoculars. They're quite extraordinary, these new binoculars. Coated lenses, you know. While also dictating a letter, you know, to one of his <laughs> to various... quote the, like, the president, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to some secretary. kind of president, yeah, right. You know, in th- in throwing a bunch of credit Ackroyd's way, I should also throw some credit to Claude Rains' direction because I think in less skilled hands, it would be so easy for Howard to just be the villain of this film. And I think that what really struck me about this film was by the end realizing how sympathetic Claude Rains turns the character of Howard into, just like a fully actualized person with a deep psychology. There really isn't a villain necessarily in this film. It is just like conflict amongst people and their emotions. I was really impressed. It's probably my new favorite Claude Rains performance. I was like so struck by him in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I guess that's a connection between the two, right? Because, you know, Roman is again, he's, he's set up as this sort of antagonistic force. If there's going to be an antagonistic force in the great outdoors. And yet also, you know, as the film goes on, uh, we get to, to glimpse inside of Roman. And we also start to see that, that there's perhaps a, a, a more sensitive human being buried deep down somewhere inside as well. It's true. Yeah, it's amazing that you've got Dan Aykroyd who says things like, I'm going to go introduce Mr. Thick Dick to the urinal cake. And then by the end of the movie, 
<laughs> you see this man as like an actualized human and you begin to care for him. <laughs> oh. Like I said, he's got every good line in this movie. There's yeah. no doubt. Hey, buddy, you pay for the drinks. I got to go to the John and be right back. Got to introduce Mr. Thick Dick to Mr. Urinal Cake. Oh, Jesus, Roman, you have to Although, you know, I also want to, you know, uh, not just Aykroyd, I think, who really shines, but I was really cracking up at Annette Benning in this. And while she doesn't have good lines, she has good reactions. Yes. And her reactions throughout the movie were really carrying me through this viewing. She's like on another level in this film. I mean, I think like... I think the film in general suffers from that sort of like what you guys were talking about, like candy being like this grounded kind of character, you know, cause it's, it sort of limits him. Yeah. And I think we see him getting out of that right in probably the best scene in the movie, his, his campfire or his fireplace horror tale of the bear. Right. And I think that's like, yeah, the one moment you could even say he almost like is breaking character in that scene compared to like how he is the rest of the movie. Because yeah. he's like kind of unhinged in a really great way. Yeah. And, you know, I think there might actually even be a reason for why that feels so different. Um, I don't know if you guys discovered this, uh, but, you know, when I was reading up a little bit more about the film and, and its production, uh, that was not... Uh, a scene that was originally scripted in the film. Originally, the film was going to climax uh, with this this sort of harrowing moment where Roman has to rescue his spooky twin daughters. He's got these spooky <laughs> ginger identical twin daughters, Kara and Mara. Very scary. <laughs> yeah, but he was going to rescue them on the lake when they uh, the two daughters went off on their own to try to go fishing and they, they caught some huge fish and it was like dragging them all around the lake. And so it was this big climactic scene where he has to go and save his daughters from this huge fish on the lake. However, apparently, as I read, they couldn't get the mechanical fish to work right. (laughs) So after it all, they were like, well, shit, we need a new climax now because this dumb mechanical fish isn't reading on the film, right? It's not working. So then they, they like retconned the thing with, Bart the bear and instead created a climax featuring the, the, the grizzly in Wisconsin. So then they also had to go back and set it up with after they'd basically like made the whole movie, that story that John Candy tells. So wow, perhaps it, it feels that way also because it was like inorganically tacked on at the end of the production. That makes total sense after hearing that because I thought that was one of the most bizarre scenes in the film because the fervor and intense fear that everyone in the room reacts to John Candy's story is borderline deranged. I I was like, if John Candy had told that story, like in the comfort of a cabin, just like in front of the fireplace, I feel like typically, you know, most people react like, wow, that's. That's crazy. It's amazing that you pulled through. But the fact that everyone is reacting like the bear is going to claw them apart if John Candy puts any more intensity into it. I mean, when he's done telling the story, they're mad at him for how intense the story was. (laughs) I can't believe you, Dad, all right? Oh, Benny, Benny, honey. Thank you. You know, I'm 25 pounds overweight. I don't need a blast to the ticker like that. I felt my plaque start flowing again. Really inappropriate, Chad. What? It's like, man, get a grip. He's just... Yeah, (laughs) but 
it does lead to perhaps my favorite moment in the film with Dan Aykroyd, yeah. uh, which is when he then the extra goes retelling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he decides it was a very spooky story and he should go comfort his young daughters before they go to bed uh, and, and put out the fears of this, this spooky story. And just the way he enters the room. It's such an amazing scene. The way he enters his daughter's room to comfort them and just immediately opens the door and says, good evening. You know, in the, <laughs> in the coldest and most business-like way. I mean, it's like Claude Rains from Passionate Friends. If like Claude Rains' character, you were like, go comfort these young girls, you know? <laughs> He's using like business lingo, you know? I mean, that that moment to me is when I think of this film, like I, th that scene is the first one that pops into my head. It's, mm -hmm. it's incredible. It, it really is. Listen, girls, uh, as your father, I feel it incumbent upon me to set the record straight on the validity of the tale which Uncle Chet shared with us this evening. I know that a terrifying story like that coming from the mouth of a recognized authority figure could be traumatizing for kids like yourselves. I know that because I had a similar experience with my Uncle Roy and a story he used to tell. Yeah, and it does explain, too, why his daughters are so bizarre. I mean, imagine having your father like that. I mean, Dan Aykroyd spoke to his children as if they were aliens in the movie. That was something <laughs> yeah. I kept thinking about. Like, he was speaking to extraterrestrials. Yeah, and there even is that, like, corny moment when, like, you know, Chet's two boys, like his 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 sons, when they they like spot them near the beach and they they play the the Twilight Zone theme on these identical twins, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's like part of what's uneven about the film. I think that like the moments where the comedy is coming from the characters, and you know, again, particularly like Dan Aykroyd's character, a lot of mm -hmm. like just his his way of sort of like invading the North woods as this, you know, this, this Chicago loudmouth, uh, Chicago border trade guy or whatever, you know, like that stuff is really good, but all of the, the like physical comedy and the moments where they really go broad, uh, that's, that's what I think what really creates this sort of uneven quality. Like you said, the, the hammy reaction to his story, you know, there, there are mm -hmm. some moments of, of slapstick in this that don't quite hit, you know, but, but when it is just sort of like Ackroyd bouncing off of John Candy or bouncing off of his wife or his fucking extraterrestrial daughters, like the movie really <laughs> does like sing to me, you know? Yeah. It does really feel like, yeah, it's just pulling in way too many directions, you know? I mean, even I gotta, I gotta get it out. The, the subplot with the sun, is oh my God. fucking worthless. Yeah. And I just think, like, think about, you know, the movie sort of purports to be, you know, like, Candy's character is like, I'm going to reconnect with my sons, you know? But then, like, that doesn't, like, actually play a role in the movie at all. And so, like, the son just, like, having this, like, fling thing, I mean, it just contributes, like, nothing. That stuff just, like, to me does not work at all you know yeah. and if you think like it could have been much more of a like you know these two guys going at each other and like upping the stakes kind of thing i would have been happy to watch more of that you know yeah uh, than some sort of like i don't even know yeah what to, it, it what comes off as like a uh 
if you take it as a whole, it, it kind of comes off as like, this is like John Hughes attempt at like an Altman hang, you know, like let's just get these people in a room together and they all have different personalities and, and they're just going to like experience some things over a weekend together, you know, but it's not nearly anywhere as, as sort of like sharp and also like inconsequential as like a good hangout film uh, could be, you know, handled in, in, uh, with, with a more skillful, like writer and, and director, like as it is, like you yeah. said, Marsh, it's just, it's a lot of these little like vignettes and moments that are kind of loosely strung together around this idea of, you know, the quote, great outdoors or, or this family vacation. But, but yeah, you know, a lot of the moments when it does feel like plot heavy, like when they're trying to like you know, actually add a sort of like plot and progression to things. It it just comes off so forced. It just comes off so like out of necessity more than anything. Yeah. And I mean, conversely, one of the things I walked away from with the passionate friends was how it accomplished the exact opposite of that. I was excited to see it, but I ended up liking this movie a lot more even than I almost thought I would, because I feel like the passionate friends is also pulling in all of these different directions and it is weirdly plotty at times, but David lean almost isn't even concerned with that. And he's almost more obsessed just with the essence of things and the way his camera lingers on particular objects or rooms or the ways that characters are framed in, in their glances, like just the way that, you know, these two parting lovers, they, notice each other through the window of a taxi cab framed from across the street or the way that in a rush to run out to the balcony to see if someone you've just said goodbye to is still with an eyesight your witness behind is like sheer curtain he's so obsessed with the actual texture and details of these moments that they heighten just the emotional quality of of everything and that's something that's doesn't exist in any of the romantic elements of the great outdoors. <laughs> Everything with that boy and that girl, I just wanted to fast forward through it. It was just ham-fisted John Hughes sap that just reeked of like a grotesque sentimentality. And then, yeah, conversely, I mean, I was enraptured at times with with this love story and the passionate friends and like found myself really stuck in the stakes of it because that camera is just moving so gracefully throughout these memories. You know, when I was like watching Passion of Friends, I, I couldn't help but think of another uh, resort film about, uh, you know, maybe a love triangle, love affair, and memory last year at Marienbad. Uh, and, and I kept thinking about... You know, th this film made well before last year at Marion Bad, but but how many sort of similarities there were between the two films in that regard, and and as well as it just being in a in a grand sense a, a, a great like memory piece, you mm -hmm. know, and that it isn't about like what happened between these people; it's about how they remember them happening right mm -hmm. how they thought they happened or what they choose to hold on to in those moments of connection and disconnection and not just like flashing back but also in ways where they sometimes flash forward or uh would have sort of like parallel 
memories, you know, of things that didn't happen, but that they thought maybe could have gone a certain way, right? That there's also this essence of how unreliable or how creative memory can be. And I think David Lean really plays with that yeah. so well that I, I couldn't help but thinking uh, Rene was, was probably a, a great admirer of this film. And Robe Grier, for that matter. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up, Andy, because I I think this film really demonstrates, uh, you know, and and I want to pump this for my own narcissistic reasons, but, like, this is a guy that edited movies and then became a director. And you can see that in every aspect of, like, how well-constructed this film is and how it's really just, like it's so clean and yet mm-hmm. also so complex, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, comparing it to Marion bad is, is fruitful because Renee, another editor before he was a director, right. And thinking of that kind of editing, I got in a very exhilarating way at a certain point, I was like, what year is it? You know, like, yeah. because there are flashbacks within flashbacks and then flash forward sometimes to not, the present day, but a flash forward to 1939, right? From Mm -hmm. 1934. And it's like, not this, you know, (laughs) like, uh, it was just flowing, you know, it's just flowing, like, uh, you know, peeling an onion or whatever. It's like that great editing that just ropes you in to this, this triangle. Yeah. Peaks of the present and sheets of the past is, as Deleuze would say, you know, they are they are completely like interwoven in a very, very advanced and sophisticated way uh, for cinema at this time. I mean, it, I, I, I kept thinking the same thing, that it's like the past, present and future are all placed on top of each other or side by side uh, in the case of, you know, a, a film strip passing in front of some some light. But but yeah. It is a delirious feeling uh, watching this film and trying to to clutch at like where we are, and and I think that speaks to the 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 struggle of the characters of all three of the the principal characters in this film of of not ever really knowing where they stand with one another or with them themselves, you know, that there is this, this kind of imbalance that's constantly teetering back and forth between these periods of time and these places and these moments with one another. It really is this amazing dance with the editing because it's remarkable how these nested sequences of memory are so palatable because that's the other thing that's so remarkable about this film is it's just really entertaining and enjoyable to watch. We, we're almost making it sound complicated, but it's like when you're watching it, it, it isn't, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's maybe you are wondering what year is this? And, and you're starting to think about how everything relates to each other. But in the moment, everything feels crystal clear. And I also think that that quality exists even after we leave this memory palace of Mary in the hotel room reflecting on the past. Because even when we return to the quote-unquote present of this film, it still kind of carries with it this weight of memory. It feels like a reflection even on the present in this way that we reflect on on our past like as memories. You know, it's like, 
on a certain level, I, I, you know, bringing the movies also again, like back into conversation with one of them Mm -hmm. and just the overall quality, like the overall experience of watching these two (laughs) films, you know, like the passionate friends is like, so, so fucking British. And like, so (laughs) I know we're also talking about like, you know, what time is it? And what year is it? But it is also like, so post-war British as well. There is this, this, in spite of the passion and the feelings and the emotion, there is just this overall kind of um, stoic coolness that that sort of pervades the film, you know, that in spite of these people feeling like they're they're torn apart and 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 feeling so, you know, lost or forlorn forlorn or whatever, like everyone is just everyone's keeping it so buttoned down, you know, throughout this <laughs> yeah. film. And it is just a very, you know, keep calm and carry on in spite of whether or not your wife is about to leave you for her her, you know, young beau. But like the great outdoors is like a family of fucking like middle class Midwesterners going on vacation together. And, and it's like, you just kind of like you're there and there is so much chaos and, and loudness and everyone's like one upping each other and, and, you know, arguing about what they should put on the grill and, you know, fighting over the bathroom. I mean, it is just like, you just hold on and you have to kind of survive it, you know? And like, as soon as it's over, you're like, boy, I need a vacation from that vacation with my family, you know, like they are such emblems of, I think the, the kind of like national character, uh, from which these two films were like born, you know, a hundred percent in a moment of just pure rapture of reconnecting with a past love you have in, in the passionate friends, you have Trevor Howard just saying, Oh, would you like some sherry? And say, Oh yes, quite. Yes. I'd love some sherry. <laughs> and then conversely in, in the great outdoors, you got John Candy being like, ah, I kind of want some hot dogs. And Dan Aykroyd just yelling at him, barking at him. You know, they make those things out of aunt yet, you know? Lips and assholes. Uh, I guess I'm old-fashioned. I like assholes. <laughs> the difference is severe. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the difference, of course, in, I think, the the filmic approach in, in both films is, is evident culturally as well, or even just, you know, era-wise, right? I mean, Lean is uh, a classical filmmaker to the core, and, and so much so that all of that, you know, like what you were saying, like the characters are very cool, stoic, buttoned up, British for sure. And then it's like Lean is doing all the emotional romantic work with the mise-en-scene, with the camera work, mm-hmm. with the editing and the goddamn romantic orchestra score, you know, like there are moments of swelling music and dollies and again that like intoxicating romanticism of the classical style of the 40s versus right yeah the slapdash you know howard deutsch onsen of uh you know the great outdoors I yeah mean, a john hughes joint yeah this guy is uh he's a hughes lackey you know and you know to i i do want to give him credit though there's a couple there's a couple moments in uh, the great outdoors where I, I thought there was some like really good staging uh, going on in particular uh, at the pier when uh, Candy's trying to teach his son how to ski. And then of course, you know, ends up 
going for a ride himself in a in a you know broad comic stuntman set piece. Uh, but before that, <laughs> a stuntman who is like less than half the weight of John Candy, <laughs> yes, too. Very evidently. Um, when he's he's like trying to teach his son, you know, about skiing, and clearly, like a Midwestern dad, has no fucking idea what he's talking about, right? Um, there's just everyone else is in the boat in the deep space of the background, like looking over the huge engine of the fancy <laughs> speedboat that Dan yeah, Aykroyd rented. Yeah, suck my wake. <laughs> and they're all just like looking and staring at him in the distance, and it's very funny. And they do it again in uh, the bat sequence, the entire families, both families are framed perfectly in deep space in the door, watching mm-hmm. as it all unfolds. So like, yeah. there there are some nice moments of mise-en-scene, but again, like, it just feels overall a chaotic and slapdash. From one scene to the next, it's like, you don't know what you're going to get, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's like, the the passionate friends is a master class in like subtext uh on a certain level you know like every conversation that's being had has like two or three different meanings like every moment uh can be read like multiple ways like some of it is very subtle and some of it is very like like just burning with intensity uh you know I, I like even like the sequence where um, when Stephen and Mary decide to to go off uh, to a, a play together, they, they tell, you know, Howard that they're, they're going to go see a play together. And it's really just a nice, you know, simple evening together. And when when he, of course, starts to get Howard gets the sinking feeling that they might not actually be at that play. There might be something else going on here. Like even just like the name of the play and then like the brief moment when Howard, you know, goes to the play himself to see if they actually are in their seats. And of course he suspects that they aren't because the tickets were left at home. So they clearly couldn't be at the show. But when he goes to the play, like one of the only lyrics you hear from this musical is like, I think it's like, my first love's the best love of all. You know, and it's like, <laughs> first love and last love, my heart always knew. I knew from the first it was you. East love and west love in springtime or fall. My first love's the best love of all. Everything you know, is so charged with this like extra mm-hmm. kind of like meaning underneath the surface of what we're seeing and we're experience, experiencing. Whereas, you know, in the great outdoors, it's like, there's no subtext. What would it be like? There's just only pretext. Like it's, it's only like <laughs> what is well, being smacked in our faces at any given moment, you know? I, absolutely. I, I do completely agree, but also uh, there was something I found strangely beautiful about the scene you just described, Marsh, of John Candy teaching his son how to water ski, something almost accidentally poetic about it. And maybe it's just because being like a Midwestern boy going on camping trips with my father, there are these broad gestures that still ring true and kind of like break through from this film. And I loved when he was, you know, showing him the form and showing him how to stand. And he says, and remember, what do you do if you run into any trouble? He says, you let go. If you're running into any trouble while water skiing, just let go. We'll come and get you. And then, of course, when that's put into practice, 
that doesn't happen, obviously, in this broad way. We've got John Candy. He, he refuses to let go. He's getting whacked in the nuts by all the different like reeds in the water. He almost crashes into so many people, almost decapitates swimming beauties like with the, the rope from his water ski. And there's something about John Candy's character as the Midwestern father who is so obsessed with this camping trip being perfect and being this tradition that he maintains with his sons. You know, my father took me out on the lake and he reflects back on it as something that was so important for him. And he's trying to pass on these lessons that even he himself isn't able to follow through with. You know, he doesn't let go, but he's trying to teach his son from his mistakes. Just let go. And again, this is all just superfluous and John Hughes sap. But at the same time, there's something at its core that I thought was like a bit beautiful about yeah. that you know it's cl- it's classic dad shit do as i yeah. say not as i do exactly <laughs> and then i guess too in giving credit where it's due uh the the power of the beauty of the lakes transcend in both films i think the exterior shots of the lake and the great outdoors are are quite nice we have some lovely sunsets we have lovely shots of the lake with none of the principal characters in them we just have these beautiful wide establishing shots in I mean, it's hard to photograph a lake poorly, but I do think those moments are, are nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could have used a little more of like uh, when they go uh, fishing at like 5 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, you know? I could have used a little dude, more on the lake with that. You know? Dude, that that, by the way, I don't know if you guys noticed, but if you go back and you look. Oh, I that do. is a fucking soundstage when they sh- that the fishing scene is horrible like yeah you could see the crease in the backdrop of of like the the soundstage wall it is so bad it yeah it's so clearly horrible. like a canvas that they hung up you can see the folds and the shadows it looks so bad yeah. there's no way they were gonna get Ackroyd and the crew up at 5 a.m to to do a bit of fishing on well, the lake you well, know but again they were like clearly they were like like the feeling that we get of like being like there's a lot in here and it's kind of pulling in different directions i mean it sounds like that's kind of what happened Happen. Like they went and they were like shooting all this stuff and then they had plans for things like the, 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 the climax of the fish on the lake, the mechanical fish, and it didn't work. So, so that is, that's gotta be a moment that was shot like well after the production where they just were like, shit, we gotta, we need a fishing scene. Maybe they were like, man, we need another lake scene in here. Whatever. Let's get them yeah. on a sound stage in LA. <laughs> I wouldn't even be surprised if that wasn't them. And they just recorded the audio because sure. they're completely soaked in shadows, you know? Yeah, get me out on the lake with the crew, you know? Why are you holding, <laughs> holding out on us? Um, I do want to point out uh, as well, you know, in terms of like what Andy, what you were talking about in terms of like the layered meaning of the passionate friends and it's sort of like everything is in place and everything is resonating. Uh, Not only was it, of course, an H.G. Wells novel, but the screenplay itself was written by Eric Ambler, who is an extremely famous British author and sort of like the the 20th century British pioneer of the spy and thriller genre. So he's like the forerunner to Graham Greene and Ian Fleming and Le Carre. So he was doing that shit, you know, before anyone. And when I saw his name... you know, I've seen like screenplays mm. he's written and, and read a couple of his novels. And when I saw his name on this thing, I was like, whoa, like he's a really good writer and he mostly writes thrillers. But then I started thinking like, well, it is there's a lot of like intrigue and spying in this film, just in like oh, yeah. a domestic context, you know, there is a lot of uh, 
there's a lot in here about perception yes. and, you know, details and people seeing things, you know, whether it was, as I mentioned, the, the tickets to the play or, you know, a book on a, on a, on a shelf, you know, there is a lot in here about, you know, characters sort of, like you said, spying on one another, trying to, to investigate, you know, their relationships with one another and, and, and what does this person actually uh, think about me? You know, all of that is handled like you said, in a way that feels very much like a, an investigation film. There's a huge element of that. Yeah, it feels like so many of the scenes are investigating the souls of these characters, too. You know, the one moment that I keep thinking about is, you know, after Stephen and Mary reuniting at the lake, go on like this oh. lovely scenic boat ride across, like in another, you know, in a speedboat. It's just stunning, crystal clear, beautiful. And then they take a cable car up into the mountains. And as the cable car ascends, they start entering into the like the mist and the clouds, and it becomes extremely hazy. And she has a line where she mentions that they felt like ghosts. And that was one of those moments where I was thinking about the present of this film feeling like memory and them investigating into the heart of themselves. And again, like perception, we have her perspective on how that felt, them ascending into these clouds and feeling like ghosts as they did so. And she's such a tortured soul in this film that you have to wonder what Stephen was thinking. He well, may have just found it sublime. He does, because his his response to that line is... It'll clear in a minute. You know, and that means both the clouds, but also right. that weird feeling she's having. Because at that point, you know, this is when they've come back together and and they, they've put that passionate uh, side of their relationship or, or, you know, they're trying to put that passionate side of their relationship to bed, you know, because they've been talking about how they both moved on and they're happy. And so in that moment when she's sort of seeing him as this ghostly apparition, it's as if she's seeing the, the specter of their previous love affair. And so when he's talking about how the clouds will clear in a minute, he's also saying, hey, just I know you're having this weird feeling here. But it'll it'll pass. Like we we're we're past this. Like we're beyond this. It'll clear in a minute. Let's just have a nice lunch and go about our lives, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess that was, you know, it was sort of a question I had for both of you, but I think that that scene and the way you describe it is a really great example of just what this title means, the passionate friends. I was thinking about that at the end of the film. I was like trying to understand why it was called that. And I think that, you know, one of the main conflicts in this film is Mary herself obviously not knowing what type of love she wants or needs in her life. Mm -hmm. While it does seem as though in that moment, Stephen has moved on. He has remarried. He does have this successful life as a professor. You know, he's, he's come to peace with it. They are passionate friends to him. And even when they do get off of that cable car and they're on top of the mountain, she immediately plays back that moment on the cable car together, but recontextualizes it and changes what was exchanged between the two of them. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she plays it back as if he hasn't been married and that he's only ever thought of her, that they aren't passionate friends, but passionate lovers. Yeah. They have a big smooch on the cable yeah. car. <laughs> that didn't actually happen. When did you get married? 
married. I'm not married. I could never marry anyone but you. Right. But and, and then again, like, you know, as they descend from that moment, you know, and as they're, they're heading back in to part ways and, and you know, uh, accept that they are now just friends, just passionate friends who 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 share a, a, a hot past with one another. Uh, that is the, the moment we've already kind of mentioned where, where Claude Rains has has arrived ahead of schedule to the resort and he's looking through the binoculars and my God, the, the letter that he's dictating, he's dictating this letter that we mentioned to his secretary. You know, he's all business, right? He just shows up at this the scenic lake and he's just right away like, let's let's take a letter here. The wording of that fucking letter as, as you know, his wife and her former lover are arriving is a fucking divorce letter. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at the, there's, there's a, again, this layered meaning to it. It sounds like a, a break, a, like a formal breakup letter because it is, it's right. It's this, it's this, it's a business relationship that is disintegrating and he's sort of dictating that. And, and like near the end of the letter, what does he basically say? Like... I don't think I have to remind you what a doubtful quantity goodwill can be in a business of this sort. The whole matter must now be handed over to our legal advisors and accountants, Dash. They're interested only in facts. They're sincerely yours. Trust is hard to come by, and and at this point, we'll all just have to leave this up to the lawyers, right? Like, this is all to be left up to the lawyers. As then they arrive, and he glimpses them, and then, like, fucking implodes. Like, after all this, they're here together, you know, blah, 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 right? And then we get the the extended sequence of the, the divorce, which I was a little sort of confused by. And again, maybe I just, you know, I don't understand British... Uh, you know, marriage law at that time, right. but it, 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 I don't know if you guys kind of can maybe help me out with this, but it seemed like when he files then for Claude Rains files for this divorce petition, because he believes that they're still having this affair. Uh, it, it somehow also like was affecting Trevor Howard's character, Stephen, like Stephen was also like these divorce proceedings were presented to like both parties and i i guess i didn't really understand that you know yeah it was as if he was like being served that he had to like appear at court there there was a line in the narration where she mentions that howard her husband is like filing for damages and i think that that's why trevor howard's character steven had to like appear in court because he was claiming that like it was damaging his reputation so he was treating it again like a business deal yeah. so yeah. he's like filed multiple motions you know he's right. like filing <laughs> for divorce with his wife he's claiming damages on the guy who cucked him you know and I, you know i want to i want to go back like one second andy because i think there's an interesting question maybe to be posed in that moment when he sees them kissing uh, because it's sort of 
just like an innocuous goodbye kiss. And obviously we're privy to the picnic in the mountain and we know nothing untoward happened. Um, But right after he sees them, there's another uh, sort of flight of fancy in the editing where it does flash to Howard's subjective uh, fantasies. And he imagines that every reimagines meeting everyone at the hotel and they know. Yeah. And they know that his wife is cheating on him. When of course the reality is is nothing of the sort. And so I, I mean I even feel like it calls into question whether they even kissed or not, you know? If we only saw their kiss through Howard's binoculars, like I'm willing to believe that they just said goodbye, you know? Mm-hmm. Like is they that perspective cannot be trusted right and but that's also again ryan to what you said about like how reigns makes this you know kind of like a fully rounded character and i think it's you know in that moment when he when he goes off you know you do realize what he later confesses to that although you know their their relationship as husband and wife is very businesslike he maybe kind of fell in love with her, you know? And as you start to realize that, that he's just all talk, you know? And that his uh, sort of resistance to any kind of romanticism uh, is a front, right? It's the banker mindset, you know? And that even he has feelings, you know? Uh, it's it's crazy, right? Yeah, the that moment after they kiss and they part, Stephen and Mary, and he witnesses it, and he's heading back up to his hotel room. He demands he gets the keys. And as he's going up, he sees the bellboy taking out Stephen's luggage. So he sees, okay, Stephen's out of the picture. He's leaving. He's getting on the lake. He's no longer staying next door. And Claude Rains is sitting in the room when his wife bursts in and rushes out to the balcony at that moment I mentioned. And she's she's behind these curtains and she's looking out on the balcony out at the lake for that one last glimpse. And it's in the mise-en-scene of that moment where everything sort of becomes clear about what's going on inside of Howard's mind as he's looking at her. Like he suddenly understands because even though nothing untoward happened, he, he sees this like pain that she's experiencing. And as he mentions later in the film, like I I didn't expect love from you, but loyalty and kindness. And he knows that there's just something inherently different about what both of them want, whether that's her not knowing what she wants in that moment, especially completely enraptured with the romanticism of that parting, but just placing him sitting down in that chair, like lower in the image than her behind the door. She passes him without even noticing him and rushes out to the balcony. I mean, it's just, it's sublime staging. It sure is. Just like the staging of when John Candy eats a 96 ounce steak uh, at the, <laughs> the supper old 96-er. club. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. Yeah, I was thinking a funny connection between these two films is they have like two incredible set pieces. Of course, the New Year's Eve party in um, in The Passionate Friends, which, you know, if you're maybe the clever eye here would notice that it was lifted directly into um, and very lovingly into Phantom Thread, That's the Paul right. Thomas Anderson film film it's like a straight ripped yeah literal recreation of that sequence um but yeah the 96er good yeah, god paul bunyan's <laughs> the paul bunyan <laughs> restaurant dude and i love just little details in that like the 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 huge like 
half log menus, the wooden menus, like the yes. novelty menus oh, that were like incredible. the largest wood menus I've ever seen. Yeah, just like big wooden tablets, half mm-hmm. a tree. I really like, yeah, I, I really do. I wasn't just joking. I really do like how that scene is staged uh, because it is kind of fast cut and everyone's, you know, reactions are pretty good. But the chef gets in there too. And he's just like this big guy covered in blood, you know? <laughs> and he's just like, you know, encouraging him to keep going and to eat it. And of course, like the punchline, he's eaten what no one else could ever do, a 96-ounce steak, but there's still the gristle and the fat uh, on it. And yeah. uh, Aykroyd tries to plead with the guy, like, come on, this is, this is gristle. Is enough? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, then he takes it even further, too, because originally the arrangement is that if he can eat all of the steak, like everyone eats for free, and Aykroyd's like, no problem. Listen, if I can get a dessert down him, think you could throw in a couple of Paul Bunyan hats for the kids. Roman, dude. <laughs> always always knowing how to negotiate a good deal. He's getting know? the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's it is like this like really like kind of funny like moment in there. And it's 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 like it's probably like John Candy's like finest moment in the film as well. Because, you know, if you think about him as a persona, it's always been like, hey, here's big John Candy, right? Like, what can he do? What's his superpower? And it's like eating an ungodly amount of red meat so his family can eat for free, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's his it's his towering moment in the film, really. It's like a precursor to uh, Homer Simpson at the all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, taking it as far as he possibly can. Oh, yeah. My favorite image in the entire film is in that sequence when Dan Aykroyd is, like, on the ground listening to john candy's stomach (laughs) to like see how he's doing and how much more can be done candy like very lovingly has his arm rested across dan Aykroyd's back as he's like a doctor (laughs) just like gurgling (laughs) candy is sweating and like looking off into the distance and Aykroyd is just carefully listening to the inner workings of that man's belly incredible image yeah they i mean they have such good rapport uh, with one another in this film. I, again, I think those are the moments that make this movie ultimately like work and not be a complete failure. Uh, and it's so clear, right? They they had such a good friendship throughout the years. Canadian boys, uh, SCTV, SNL, the cross pollination that went on there. And I think like those tender moments that you get between the two of them are you know, the the emotional heart of this film. And it's funny because they are brothers-in-law, right? And, like, mm-hmm. John Candy's wife is the sister of Roman's wife. But the funny thing I feel throughout this movie is, like, you don't get really any of that. Like, that that's the connection. Like, the, the real, like, deep connection in this film is between... Chet and Roman, you know, their their rivalry, their their sort of affection for for one another. At least I get the impression that Roman, you know, likes Chet a lot more than maybe Chet likes Roman. Um, but also, you know, we get in, in a similar way with Roman's character uh, a, a, a kind of 
sort of parallel journey to Claude Rains' character as well, you know, where he he comes off as a certain way, you know, as this sort of impenetrable hotshot business guy. And yet we also have a moment of, of emotional sort of wall breaking for his character, where he reveals not all about him may be exactly what it seems. He's still kind of a crooked business guy, you know, but but we do we are treated to this moment where his character has a sort of arc, if you will, where he kind of comes around. But definitely, Andy. And I think that really also kind of speaks to, I think, in a certain way, the the impoverished imagination of John Hughes that he cannot conceive of the women or even the children as fully rounded characters. Yes, because I would have liked more of that well roundedness. I would have liked to dig deeper into you know the wives' relationship. There's even there's like the one funny moment when Annette Benning's like, "Oh, it's so hard to be rich uh, when they're <laughs> when they're hanging yeah. out in the bar," you know. But like again. It's just totally skirted for for, you know, the the slapstick comedy and that's fine. But ultimately, yeah, there's really two real characters in this movie. And of course, it's the two Mm -hmm. lead guys. But like, yeah, it really does feel like Hughes was just, you know, and then they're yeah, they're sisters. But like they're not in the movie. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. I got no affection between these two sisters. Like it seemed they were even more antagonistic to one another at times than than Chet and Roman were like they their relationship came off like they barely knew one another at, at all. Yeah, I had completely forgotten they were sisters. I <laughs> halfway through the film, I thought that it was about brothers. <laughs> you know, like I, I completely lost track. I was watching it with Hillary, my girlfriend, and Hillary at some point was like, "So how are all these people related?" And I I said, "I'm like." I don't know. I think they're like cousins or something. <laughs> like, and I had to like, <laughs> like go back there and be like, oh, okay, yeah, the yeah, the sisters and they're married because of that, you know. Yeah. But you know, Marsh, you know, bringing up the the like, <laughs> the impoverished imagination of John Hughes, you know, it's it it really strikes me because I am not like a a, a big John Hughes like fanboy, but it it like one of the things that I always find so funny about like the dynamic. That, that Hughes tries to create in his own sort of like commentary about the state of America and the state of American identity in the 1980s is like the, the, the grandest conflict that he can find is the tension between like the lower middle class and the upper middle class. You know? It's like that's like the depth of his commentary on like the struggles of being an American in the me generation. You know, it's like, well, you make $50,000 a year and I make $45,000 a year. We're not on the same level. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of uh, what Kerr, uh, Dave Kerr wrote about this film in the Chicago Tribune uh, at the time. He wrote, Hughes's comedy is based on a double game while pretending to satirize middle class moralism and archetypal plot formulas of the father knows best school of situation comedy he always ends by upholding the basic values of the genre Hughes has found a way to be both hip and complacent cynical and reassuring and it's a combination that clearly has a vast commercial appeal though its honesty as art is highly dubious. (laughs) Mm, Very good. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is, and it is funny how things like that end up being accidentally interesting in the film. Like you had mentioned the line that Annette Benning says, like, oh, it's so hard to be rich. That line is interesting in the context of the film when it is revealed that they're not rich, that Dan Aykroyd is a fraud and they're bankrupt. So her even saying that, like, wow, it's really difficult to be rich. It's like, yeah, because he's completely gaslighting her into them having wealth, it might actually be hard for her to be rich in this because they're not rich and whatever fucking loopholes he's having her jump through in order to create that illusion. Like that's an interesting line in the context of the film, but it's clear that John Hughes like wasn't actually considering that. No, you know? no. <laughs> it just serves its, it serves its purpose to, 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 to have the most like, softball kind of approach to to that kind of criticism which is yeah. like he's like this rolex it's fake you know like <laughs> and she gasps <laughs> yeah you know and, and again it's always this like sort of really like just half-assed approach at being like see the rich they may be rich in 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 wealth but they're not rich in spirit you know like that's always kind of where it goes but but he always lets those characters off the hook they're all still redeemed at the end of the film like they're still brought into the family they're still brought into the fold you know and and that's yeah. again exactly what happens here like he has that moment where he's like it's all fake you know and it's like okay you may be a crooked businessman you may be a shady guy you may have tried to just fraud your brother-in-law out of $25,000 but you know what you're still my damn brother-in-law. You're still a good guy deep down inside, you know? There's they always kind of get a pass in in mm -hmm. these like John Hughes movies. I guess the question then is to connect the films is whether or, or not you guys think that that Howard in uh, the Passionate Friends is redeemed in a similar manner, right? Because uh, I think he is, but I do think oh, yeah. I do think the film uh, obviously still uh, has some kind of like I don't mean you know maybe necessarily want to skip to the very end right now, but I do think it's kind of like there's room to imagine what is going to happen after the end of the film, you know. Um, but he is redeemed. Right. Yeah, I think the film in the end respects him quite a bit because I, I agree that there is room after the ending to imagine like this isn't going to work out. But <laughs> the movie appreciates the grace of that final moment between Howard and Mary. And I think that it shows a great deal of character on his part for the way he like reacts and handles th th that ending of the film because again like i said in a normal film like a more typical film howard would probably be played off as the villain but the closest thing to a villain in this film is sort of mary just because of the way she it's her damn british upbringing dude yeah yeah exactly yeah i mean i'm, I'm not trying to like place blame on anybody but like you know Howard is the one that is like bearing the brunt and the consequences of of her actions, you know, like he's not being dishonest with her. He has his cards laid on the table and he does, you know, eventually admit that he is falling in love with her. But I think the film is intelligent enough to acknowledge that he's suffering a great deal of pain because of what she she put him through. And I think that in a way, then, yes, I do think he is redeemed at the end of the film because of the way that that's detailed. Well, you know, I, I couldn't help but see this film, too, as this sort of like weird 
post-war, uh, post-World War II, like British film. Uh, and, and that so much of the spirit of that, that time was somehow also being encapsulated by this, this sort of journey, the journey of these characters and their various personalities, you know, like I see Howard as, you know, he's the older man. He's, he's of the, the, the first world war generation, you know, he's, he's much more cool and calm and pragmatic and, and Howard being this product of like the oversexed period of like world war two, when Americans were coming in here and there was this great shift in British attitudes towards sex and romance and passion. And, you know, there's been much talked about that era of when like all the damn American GIs were there and we're teaching everybody to, to cut loose, you know, and that, you know, Howard's representing this sort of like older generation of Great Britain that was sort of about, yeah, these, these like marriages of, of convenience and of status and protecting one's status and that sort of thing. And this film in a weird way, kind of like it, it, in a weird way, like tries to put like the, the, the character of Steven, like to bed, you know, of being like, look, you know, between 1939, 1945, we all kind of, we had a lot of fun. Right. But, but now, you know, that period's over and we need to get back to business and we need to get back to the business of building Britain, you know? And so it seemed like that, yes, ultimately like the character who wins the most is Howard because he kind of like, he, he, he gets Steven out of his life, like he puts his wife in her place, you know, like he's sort of like enough of all this right now. You're just going to be my friend and, and, and go to, <laughs> go to parties with me or something like that. You know, like you're going to, you're going to help me somehow like, you know, get Britain back to its greatness. You know, I mean like his character is like, you know, at, at times, like, what, what is he talking about? He's just like, oh, I just got back with a meeting with the members of the German and Italian governments, you know? And, like, it's very clear to me that the dynamic there is, like, him as a symbol of British power, especially post-World War II, of, like, kicking the Germans and the Italians back down, you know? And just being like, now we got your ass. We're back on top, you Dude, know? He compares their love, he compares Mary and Stephen's love to the Third Reich at a certain point <laughs> yeah. where he's like, that's what passion does, you know? Yes. And it's like, holy <laughs> fuck, dude, what? Yes. <laughs> like, that's what I mean. It's like, it's like so much of that, you know, is like Stephen like represents the, the, the chaos of World War II. And it's like, okay, you know, again, it's a sort of like memory piece. Like, it's like, yes, we all lost our heads there for a little while, but, but, you know, time to, time to get back to, to, to doing what we do best as the British, you know, which is yeah. have a, have a small sort of raising of the voices argument and, and, and knocking over a single vase and then immediately apologizing for it, you know, for such for a having, good moment. <laughs> yeah. His, 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 his like Cassavetes esque outburst, you know, <laughs> like where he yeah. just, 
knocks over a potted plant, you know, and I don't even think breaks the the, the vase itself. Instead know? of going full Citizen Kane, he went uh, slightly partially Citizen Kane, you know, <laughs> and immediately apologizes after but, the outburst. Oh, that's really that really you know killed me. It's such a brilliant moment the way Lean stages it in this outburst. You know, Mary comes to him and is like, "Please don't sue us," you know, like what the fuck? And he freaks out for a second and says some really really hurtful things. Smashes the vase. You gave me love and kindness and loyalty. But it was the love you'd give a dog and the kindness you'd give a beggar and the loyalty of a bad servant. And then is basically like, I'm sorry. I actually, I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean all that. I lost my head. It's unfair. You see... There was one thing I didn't bargain for in our relationship. And I didn't know it until a few weeks ago. It's a curious sort of apology to make for behaving so badly now. But I... I fell in love with you. And when, yeah. he, and when he turns around, she's gone. You know, she didn't hear his confession, right? And so the sort of redemption we were alluding to is Mary goes down into the tube and for the second time in the film is contemplating suicide and throwing herself on the tracks or in front of the train. And just as she's about to... Claude Rains appears out of nowhere and saves her life. And basically the movie ends right there. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, shit, you know? Like, because yeah. you're right, Andy. It is, you know, ultimately, what can we take away from that? That, you know, no one can no one can beat British society at, at their own game, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. I mean, know. Well, I guess, you know, you asking the question of is he redeemed at the end of the movie, that in and of itself is sort of a very romantic gesture, which is something he wasn't doing at any point in the film. He was very businesslike. Yeah, he ran after her. Can you imagine that guy running? No, I can't, especially the way he's, like, built and presented in this film. Like, he's very blocky, you know? And... It's like obviously no question that David Lean just despises the institution of marriage. Um, I mean, he was divorced five times. He even divorced his current wife and married Ann Todd in 1949 while making this movie. Passionate friends. But I think like as much as he disdains everything that Howard the Claude Rains character stands for, I think he does show a bit of empathy and does allow for that moment of redemption at the end of the film, which at first I couldn't tell if it rang true or not, but I think I walked away with, because of it being open-ended and the whole film feeling like a memory piece, I was essentially like, I'll allow it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, in David Lean's eyes, you know, the, the, the character of Howard is redeemed, you know, like in, in my eyes, you know, maybe not so much, but like in the film, like he certainly is, you know, he's, he's ultimately a good guy, Steven. And it's, it's, it's the clever construction of the film as well, because the, the film is designed that way. Like in the beginning of the film, we as an audience are supposed to sort of root for uh, Stephen and Mary, you know, getting together. Right. But like where the film actually takes us is saying like, 
now you see how you all were wrong on this one. <laughs> you know, like you see, Stephen and her were not the ones you wanted to be together. Really, it's Howard and Mary. That's the couple we really want, you know? Like the film is interesting in that sense. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I can't help but kind of like reread it that way. I mean, like Stephen has some moments to me also that are like incredibly like, like, whoa, kind of like harsh, you know? I mean, Mary gets it worse than anybody in the movie. You know, Mary is kind of like beset upon and guilt tripped by both of these guys, like throughout the, the film. You know, there's that part earlier in the film when, when Steven is like first kind of like proposing to her and he's first like, why don't you, you know, just marry me, get, get, marry me, get together with me. And she says, she says like this incredibly like mature and beautiful thing about like, again, against perhaps the, the institution of marriage where she's like, but I want to be free. I don't want to belong to anybody. And then his immediate reply to her, Stephen's immediate response is, then your life will be a failure. And it's like, whoa, man, like what the fuck? Like, you know, Stephen wants to, to possess her. And like, I think that's the point with Howard, you know, it's like why in this film, Howard is ultimately the one who kind of comes out on top because like Howard is constantly saying, like love shouldn't be about ownership and it shouldn't be about possession. And he has this whole thing about like unhealthy, uh, unhealthy attraction and the need to be around one another all the time. You know, his whole point is like, Hey, a good marriage might actually be one where we sleep in separate bedrooms and we have our own personal staffs to take care of our appointments throughout <laughs> the course of the day. We don't intermingle all of that, you know, like, I feel like that's kind of in a weird way, like where this film ends up in in terms of of its statement about like love and marriage. Well, I know? wonder, too, you know, I did a brief sort of like wiki look at uh, the Wells novel because I was sort of curious, like, how does it end, you know, uh, and. It was not what I expected because in the novel, Mary dies by suicide. She hits that train. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so that made me sort of go like, well, okay, this is a British film office scenario then. If David Lean wanted to replicate the original ending, he certainly would not have been allowed to uh, in any way, shape or form. Right. So uh, something to think about there in the age of censorship. Yeah. And even also too, though, thinking about, a lot of what Andy you brought up about them representing distinct elements of of Britain and post-war Britain that of course the book was written in 1913 um, so I would be curious to read it just to like recognize some of the differences there in terms of like the specificity of the time period in which David Lean like adapts this film you know yeah. Um, yeah I love there's a great moment in the film too when you were talking about how Stephen has that crazy line where he says like your life will be a failure. I like how that's also recontextualized when Stephen and Howard go head to head and Howard directly says to Stephen, how can you possibly judge? You say you love Mary. Yes, I always have. Well, you may love her, but you don't know her. I do. Our marriage has been very successful until now. It's based on freedom and understanding and a very deep affection. It's the marriage Mary and I both wanted. Your love is the romantic kind. The kind that makes big demands. Nearness, belonging, fulfillment, and priority over everything else. That isn't the kind Mary really wants. 
Although you almost persuaded her that it was. I just think it's interesting, too, how this film has these two men that are so clear about what they expect and what they want from a romantic partnership. And then, of course, this poor woman who's, like, trapped in the just like not knowing herself what she wants but then by these two like very strong willed men who like have definitions and clear-cut ideas about how they would like to carry on their romances so you do really feel for this poor woman who Mm -hmm. is stuck then between her infatuations and her love for both of them yeah and and on the flip side you know we have these these two men who have very clear ideas of of what a vacation on the lake should be about. (laughs) And how, how, you know, the families are sort of caught in between that. I think that's, uh, you know, the moment that I really liked and I wanted to even ask Marsh about specifically because he's currently on the lake is the, uh, the debate had about, you know, the proper lake vessel, you know, the pontoon boat versus the drag boat, the jet boat. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, I, I got to admit, uh, I'm a pontoon boat guy. And if that makes me, uh, you know, a middle class fuddy duddy John Candy, then so be it. You know, when yeah. I was younger, yeah, you want to get when you're skiing and tubing, you want to get hauled around as fast as possible. But uh, it, at my advanced age, I am uh, I'm a, a sunset cruise with a brew in hand on the mm-hmm. uh The floating couch. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, like, again, there's a a montage in The Great Outdoors that I wish was actually like a whole sequence, which is the uh, go-karting versus golfing uh, montage. Again, the idea of like how these two different guys want to experience vacation. And again... And you won't catch me fucking golfing on vacation, but, you know, back in the day when we used to come up to this lake in the 90s, there was a a decrepit, run-down place called Adventureland. And it was uh, go-karts, mini-golf, busted, rusted rusted trampolines with coils, (laughs) you know, spiking upwards. It was like... Make you want to get a tetanus shot. Oh, my God. I mean, those go-karts were not safe, you know? And uh, that's the shit I love. So, I mean, I I firmly, obviously, ally with with candy in terms of the vacation appreciating. Yeah. Again, I love that moment. Like Dan Aykroyd, just again, he gets all the good lines. And I love when he's like, what does he say? Pontoon boat. What the hell are you going to do with a pontoon boat? Retake Omaha Beach? (laughs) You know, like... I love his costumes too. This movie has pretty good costumes generally. I love especially just Dan Aykroyd's wardrobe. I love his very yellow golfing outfit that he's wearing uh, yeah. during that sequence. He looks very funny in such a bright shade of yellow, you know. His pajamas are really good too. His like full plaid man pajamas. I mean, you gotta you gotta give it up to Hughes at least in the sense that he in this film he immortalized the fib. Uh, for those who don't know, that's uh, F I B fucking Illinois bastards, and that's uh, <laughs> yeah, what dude. people from Wisconsin refer to Chicagoans on vacation as, because we are uh, indeed a scourge upon the Great Lakes region as we all you know descend from Chicago to various lakes over the summers and it's again you know this is the john hughes mind he's like there's two types of guys but they're both fibs you know it's like like (laughs) these are both just yeah just like blundering chicago idiots you know of just two different flavors so uh i appreciate that you know yeah yeah 
Yeah, because you you do you do get them right because like John Candy's character represents that sort of like kind of like overly sentimental like romanticizing a thing that you are always just a tourist like with you know like you you don't belong to these Northwoods you don't own them but he constantly speaks of them as if like they're like this deeply ingrained part of like his existence that the that the Northwoods need him as much as he needs them right that they they sort of exist for these father and son moments and like the roman character is the guy that just like when he gets out of the car out of his mercedes uh you know the first thing he says when he looks around at this you know at i think what is it called it's one it's wally and juanita's like peak pines resort or something like that like he just looks around and immediately says what a gas like he just thinks it's all like ridiculous and stupid it's a joke and he's above it all you know he's just here like looking at these people as all there as if they're they're sort of like extras at disney world you know and i think those marsh like you said those are like the two the two fibs right there <laughs> yeah, absolutely. you know it's like john candy he, he speaks about these things so knowingly and yet he's so wrong about all of them and roman is just like has nothing but contempt for them you know and yet he's yeah. still there flashing his wad you know from chicago there's also the element of the fibs being completely at war with nature too while pretending that they're like finding peace and getting away from the city of air course. I was deeply disturbed by some of the sequences with the animals in this movie, they, for, particularly when the bat gets inside of the house <laughs> and it's a whole comedic set piece about murdering a bat. Yeah. It's like, just open a window. Like, it'll fly out. It's just a... Dude, it's just, but yeah, that was dude. insane. Like, it was this whole joke set piece about them freaking out and just spazzing and then just brutally murdering a bat. And they're like, great job. Yeah. Thank you. God. And I'm like, there's a fib for you. And again, great line for Roman. What does he say? Right after he kills this bat, right after he beats this like little little <laughs> bat to death, he says, what a fighter. I salute him, but I got to get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love it so much. He's oh, so man. great. And I think too, you know, we would be remiss not to talk about Wally, the proprietor of this Northwoods Lodge setup, because oh uh, it is of course played by the wonderful Robert Prosky, who oh, yeah. uh, is is in a lot of the film, but God damn, give me more! And he's mm -hmm. a he's a real treat. He's just like covered in dirt and playing, you know, this kind of like yeah, you know, uh, Chicago imagining, you know, some sort of like rough uh, North Northwoods bumpkin who's wearing like a a shirt that says "I've been to Duluth" with suspenders <laughs> on it, you know, and he's got in his office or you know in his lodge he's got a a shotgun that's also a lamp uh yeah. which plays into you know the comical climax of the yeah, film it's it's, it's chekhov shotgun lamp. yeah 100 <laughs> percent. he has that really psychotic line at the beginning of the film when he's like apologizing for the behavior of a dog and he says oh, what happened to that uh, <clears throat> that dog's face porcupine quills loves porcupines hates people treason heat too too bad you're not a dog. And I remember when he said that, Molly was like, what the fuck did he just say? And I said, he said a Wisconsin thing. Yeah. You know, like, mm -hmm. again, a weird moment of authenticity, the psychotic thing you might hear, like, a Wisconsin man in a tourist town say something really off color and strange. One other thing that reminds me of, you know, stupid Chicago vacationers uh, that I think really 
really hits for me, at least did last night when we watched it, is when they go to the garbage dump to see the bears. Oh my god. <laughs> that's like a, gr- that's a that. great idea for a set piece. And like, they're not the only ones there. There's like a whole row of cars, and it's like, okay, well, where can we see bears? Like, oh, the garbage. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. obviously it turns into like a kind of a stupid thing where it's like, yo, dude, just pull out, you know, who cares? But then the bears are climbing all over his car. Uh, but just the idea of going to watch bears in garbage as part of your vacation, you know, I, f- I feel like my family would do that, you know, if there oh, was... Yeah. yeah, it made me really sad. And because it, it is something <laughs> that was really common with people vacationing, especially in like the 40s through 60s was like giving candy to black bears Mm -hmm. that is something that happened all the time at the national parks was and that's why because black bears are kind of like puppies you know they're like the puppies of the woods and that was such a common thing was like buying candy to give to them like in the wrapper just really really bad behavior and yeah that scene felt like the 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 pinnacle of what that might look like like let's all admire them in the garden well imagine the vacations hughes went on as a kid you know they're like the classic like chicago road trips that like my dad's family took in the 50s like all right we're driving to california and just like throw probably throwing pop cans out the window all the meanwhile (laughs) you know yeah i mean like that like you said there's just so many things it's such a scattershot of approach to to that to capturing that spirit that you're talking about marsh i mean there's also just these crazy little interludes with those raccoons where we get like the raccoons that are constantly going in there and like invading the garbage but we get the raccoons like subtitled they're speaking to one another you know and that like constantly happens with this sort of like brassy chicago-esque kind of music uh whatever's going on there you know but like it is just such an uneven experience and yet i think part of the reason why i can't i come back to it and, and specifically for this week i really wanted to give it to to you to watch marsh while you were there was because i was like yes this is a such an uneven imperfect object and yet in a strange way it really does kind of distill in its own way down like that chicago lake house vacation experience Mm -hmm. you know it really does i think i think the biggest bummer to me of the entire film the biggest bummer is that i think one of the 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 best moments in the film one of the moments that just seems like it has the 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 most spirit is the credits dance number mm-hmm. which is so strange to me and i can't help so but weird. feeling thinking about how messy this film is is that that was at a certain point integrated yes. into the film itself like it feels not like this kind of you know, fourth wall breaking moment of like, let's just have something funny happening during the credits. Like for those who don't know what we're talking about, like this film ends, you know, we go through the whole thing. And then during the credits, we get this crazy dance that's happening at one of these North woods bars where, where Chet and Roman and their wives are just taking part in this big, big dance number that's kind of happening and, and it's just like, it's good, you know, like everyone's into it. Ackroyd is really hamming it up, you know, from all of his, his blues brothers uh, experiences, you know, and he's tearing it up in this bar and it's just like awesome. 
But it's like, what is this thing? Like, I, I feel like it had to, there had to be a sequence where they were like at a bar and, and Roman was like, come on, we all got to liven up the atmosphere here or something. But it's so cool. And it's just sort of this throwaway thing during the credits. I don't really understand it. They're wearing costumes from earlier in the film. So I think you're yeah. right, Andy, because like Candy's wearing the diamond sweater in that. So it's like, yeah, that was definitely had to have been part of another scene or part of a scene uh, that got cut out. I wish we would have had that instead of the fucking stupid subplot with with Bucky oh. and the, the A&W root beer girl. Oh, my God. You know? Oh, my like, God. That, that there's a line I can't stop thinking about from this movie when he 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 says something to her like oh yeah I'm just trying to you know meet like the local girls or whatever and she says you don't know how local I am and I was like what the fuck does that even mean I like can't stop thinking about that line because yeah. I'm mainly trying to figure out what John Hughes thought that meant when he wrote it. I mean, to me, it's like an impenetrable enigma of the movie. You don't know how local I am. It just made me. It just made me think of another good vacation movie. Uh, what about Bob? Uh, where Bill Murray, like you know, immediately goes and buys a T-shirt that just says in like big block letters, "Don't hassle me. I'm local." <laughs> just for yeah. some reason, like it's just so meaningless. Sure. Like right. you know. Well, I'm just glad that we got. Two good speedboat runs in both movies, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're zipping around in both films. And we get some nice close-ups of uh, Ann Todd and Trevor Howard as they're just sort of, you know, shredding across the lake in France and the spray behind them. And then, you know, we get the skiing in uh, the great outdoors, you know. Here's my question to you, gentlemen. Uh, where would you rather vacation at uh, Wally and Juanita's in the North Woods slash Bass Lake in California or the Hotel Splendide in Switzerland? Where would you rather? Well, it's simple. Rather... I, can, I simply cannot afford one of them. So I'll, yeah. I'll go to the North Woods. I'll take it. I love it. Well, I would rather go to the Swiss Lake, uh, but I wouldn't want to stay at that hotel. I would find like a little Airbnb cabin or something, or I would just camp. But I would much rather go to that lake because those peaks are just mm-hmm. stunning. If I had to go with my family, I would rather go to the um, Wally and Juanitas, the Big Bear Lake yeah. in California slash Wally and Juanitas. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed your little vacations here, Marsh. I hope it complemented your own vacation uh, well. What was the What was the verdict of? The, I'm, I'm curious what the verdict of was. The the uh, the whole family watching. The great outdoors. What was the reaction yeah. of everybody? Watching Everyone that? was laughing, you know, at a lot of the big moments, a lot of the zingers. Um, but you know, the the seven year old and the three the three year old got up and walked out in five minutes, <laughs> uh, and then the seven year old I think uh, didn't understand what was going on and uh, did not like it for you know classic reasons of kid confusion because uh, we were all laughing and I think she was just sort of like. What? You know, it is like in that sense, I I was surprised, you know, because we weren't, you know, we were trying to remember this film being like, is this film appropriate? Would they even like it? Who cares if it's appropriate? Would they like it? You know, and it's like, well, maybe. Uh, And the answer was absolutely not, you know, Uh, so the kids hated it. Um, But I think everyone else, you know, we we had our laughs. 
That's good. That's good. Yeah, it was nice. Well, what are some other what are some other lake films that you do enjoy that whether you, maybe you'll show them to the whole family or just a private lake film that evokes the idea of a lake for you? Yeah, I've got a I've got a couple that I definitely wouldn't want to show to my family. Um, number one, you know, an obvious but recent one. Uh, that I saw at the music box many years ago, Stranger by the Lake from 2013, yeah. the Alain Guriard film uh, about a gay man who hangs out on a nude beach and gets uh, sort of involved in kind of, yeah, Hitchcockian slash perceptive hijinks uh, in a very fun psychological uh, way on this beach in France. I would say that's a, you know, a recent one that I really enjoyed, Uh, but I got to take it all the way back to Leave Her to Heaven, the uh, John Stahl film from 1945, the very famous technicolor noir with gene tierney and cornell wilde and uh that's you know the dark lake right that's where you get yeah. uh, very bad stuff happening on a lake and uh that's that's one that i'll never forget in terms of uh cinematic lake depictions for, <laughs> for how fucked up that movie is you know <laughs> correct me correct me if i'm wrong but didn't the Cornell Wilde bowling noir we watched, oh, pff, God, a while back? Roadhouse? Yeah, wasn't there a lake involved in that? Wasn't there yes. some body of water as well? At the very end, they try to escape from uh, Jeff D by floating down that lake. They they hop on the boat and then like Jeff D unloads on it and the boat sinks. Uh, <laughs> fucking Jeff D. That reminds me, you know, they announced, uh, they, you know, Hollywood, who cares, uh, that they're going to remake the Swayze Roadhouse. And I thought we should remake Ida Lupino's Roadhouse, you know? Yeah. And then we could have two Roadhouses competing at <laughs> the box office, right? Yeah, I mean, the casting would be easy. You just get Walton Goggins in there as Jeff D. 100%. He's got a picture. 100%. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the lake, lake movies I like. And I guess a real quick nod to L for leisure, uh, which only very partially takes place on a lake, but there's uh, water skiing in that movie that I love. So, uh, check that one out as well. 2014 film. Very good. Very fun vacation vibes. Um, well, it was my topic this week and, Boy, you guys really, you really brought the lake vibes. It was very enjoyable, especially watching these very short films. I am on vacation after all. So uh, appreciated the runtimes uh, as well as the uh, immaculate lake vibes. But next week, it is Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Hmm, well, um... You know, I was sort of, I had a few different ideas that I was kind of kicking around, but I think after watching The Great Outdoors and um, really sort of like once again kind of appreciating John Candy and thinking about him a little bit, uh, I I I was thinking how much I wanted to re-watch uh, a movie of his that I, I haven't seen in a long time, that I was a huge fan of when I was a kid. It's a movie... Uh, called Who's Harry Crumb? I don't know if either of you guys have ever seen it, but it's it's great. And uh, he plays in that a, a very eccentric and uh, underestimated private investigator. And that just sort of then made me kind of 
think a little bit about how I really do, really do like movies about private eyes. So I want to lean into that. Uh, let's go bring me films where the lead character is a private dick. Let's have some private dicks next week. So you got it. That's what I want. Certainly no private dicks in Stranger by the Lake. Those are very public dicks in that movie. <laughs> That's very, right. Very As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Howard's secretary had traveled with me, and even she was impressed. Why the hell would you want to come up to a plant-infested no-man's land like this and live like a barbarian for a week? Thank you, madame. It is lovely, isn't it, Jen? Yes, it is. Has mademoiselle's room the same view? I mean, look around you, woman. For God's sakes, this is, this, is, this is beautiful country here. Take a good look. In Switzerland, whatever you may think, however bad it may have looked to you, there was nothing wrong. I think you'd better go. Hard, please listen to me. Ah, you wouldn't understand. <laughs>